Well, let's return to our narrative in the book of Genesis about the life of Jacob, Genesis chapter 29 this morning. We found that Jacob is a man who seeks to obtain blessing by any means possible. He tricked his, his, his brother and deceived his father in order to get the family birthright and God's covenant blessing. And what he succeeds in doing causes him to flee to Haran to escape his brother Esau's wrath and find a wife to build his household. And God meets him on the way and promises to bless him and to keep him. And Jacob, in turn, is willing to take God at his word. And if God does what he says, then Jacob will worship and serve him. But Jacob has to learn a lot of things the hard way, and what we call the school of hard knocks. While Jacob bargained with Laban for his wife, he got uh, two for one, but still had to pay the price of both. He did so because he was deceived by a deceiver who was more cunning than he was. And although Jacob did get Rachel as his wife, it was only the beginning of many years of turmoil and strife. The school of hard knocks was far from over. In the story we read this morning, we see how the Lord fulfilled his word and gave Jacob descendants. His sons, I'm sure, were a great blessing to him, but their arrival in the world came through much misery and strife and rivalry between their mothers. It was not a harmonious home for a number of reasons. First of all, Jacob had two wives instead of one. And although God overlooked this in the Old Testament, we find it never comes with good results. Secondly, Jacob abdicated his leadership in the home. He was not active in resolving the rivalry, and he did not seek the Lord's wisdom and guidance. Again, we see that Jacob at this point is prayerless. Thirdly, Leah suffers because she's unloved. Her misery is demonstrated in the naming of her children. And finally, although Rachel is loved, she's unable to bear children, and this is a reproach that she desperately wants to remove. Each sister wants what the other one has. Leah is unloved, but fertile. Rachel is loved, but unfertile. So Leah wants to be loved and appreciated by her husband, but is not. Rachel wants to be blessed with children, but is unable to have any. So the source of conflict, which leads to this rivalry and contention in the home, is Uh, brought out very clearly. But despite all these issues, we see the Lord overruling and building Jacob's home, even through all the frustration. We see the Lord blesses his people when they're distressed and troubled. He blesses them even when they're selfish and contentious and trusting in worldly means to satisfy their longings. And he blesses them by replacing their reproach with hope. 
So let's ask the Lord to bless us as we look into this narrative. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for these stories of old that teach us much today. We're thankful, Lord, that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have a home life that's not stressful if we're doing what God wants us to do and walking in his ways. And Lord, we realize that even though when we are not faithful, when we do fail, when we do try to bring about your will in our way, you still overrule and bless us. But Lord, we certainly face chastisement along the way. So as we see again your dealings in the life of Jacob and the hard knocks that his family went through, we're thankful that you blessed them anyways and that ultimately your will was accomplished. We pray, Lord, you'll help us to uh, apply some truths to our lives from this today. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, as we begin today, I want you, first of all, to note the structure of the passage. You're going to notice here four times uh, uh, it's observed that, that somebody saw something. In verse 31 of chapter 29, it's noted that the Lord saw Leah's situation. Then we come to verse 9. We see that Rachel saw uh, Leah's situation. And then in verse, um, excuse me, chapter 30, verse 1, we see Rachel seeing uh, what's happening to Leah. And then in verse 9, we see Leah looking at what's happening to Rachel. And finally, at the end of the chapter, verse 22, we see God remembered or looked again upon Rachel. We start out with God in compassion looking at Leah's situation, giving her children. And then at the end, we see God taking away the reproach of Rachel and giving her a child as well. But in between... The story is just laden with all kinds of, of misery, difficulty, and strife. So the first thing we want to look at this morning, beginning in 29 verse 31, is that the Lord blesses his oppressed people. And we note here that Leah is afflicted because of Jacob's lack of affection. In verse uh, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. Now, that's a very strong term, and in some translations, it's actually uh, the word hated, and elsewhere it's translated that in the word of God. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Jacob hates Rachel, but what is being drawn out here is that she is the one who does not really have his affection. It is Rachel that has his affection. It can mean a very strong sense of enmity towards someone, but in this situ situation, it's really kind of revealing Jacob's resentment toward Leah because she was involved in deceiving him with her father Laban. And the result is he withholds any kind of affection. He doesn't show her the love really that he should, and it seems like he's never going to. Of course, Leah is distressed by that because I think she really loved Jacob. And uh, uh, Jacob's attitude toward her is what's going to fuel now this rivalry with her sister Rachel. But God sees that situation and he acts with compassion as he often does. 
Leah's blessed with abundant fertility because she's not loved by Jacob. Now, Jacob expected to build his family with Rachel, not with Leah, because that's the one he loved, that's the one he chose, that's the one he bargained for to be his wife. But God is not going to neglect the misery of Leah, the unloved one. And so he again turns the tables on Jacob's plans and Jacob's thinking and uh, Jacob's way of thinking he's going to obtain God's promise of descendants. So Leah is blessed with four sons in verses 32 to 35. As we go through here, you're going to see that each of these sons, as they are named in the narrative, bear a connection to what's going on in the life of one of these two women. And they don't exactly have an etymological connection to the, uh, to the names that are given them, but their, their word plays, their sound plays or puns on the situation. And also we have to understand here that we're talking about the second seven years in which Jacob served Laban for his two wives, because um, it's not till verse 25 of chapter 30 that Jacob comes to the end of that period and wants to go away. So, uh, ladies and men, think of having 11 sons in seven years. Uh, it's physically impossible unless you have more than one wife. And of course, we're not going to start doing that kind of thing. But that's what's going on here. So some of these uh, uh, situations, uh, there's going to be either one wife and one concubine having children at the same time, because in that period of time, uh, 11 sons are born to Jacob. All right, so let's go through here and see what's happening. Uh, uh, in verse 32, Leah conceived, she bears her first son, she calls his name Reuben, for she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction, now therefore my husband will love me. Now Reuben uh, means see a son, or look a son. So that plays on Leah's perception that the Lord has looked upon her affliction, looked upon her misery, and given her a son. It also reflects back to verse 31, where it says, the Lord saw. All right, so we're we're playing on that idea of God seeing a situation and doing something about it. Then she has another son, uh, and incidentally, She is hopeful that this is going to cause Jacob to love her because she has born to him his first son. And that was an important um, event in the life of the patriarchs. Her longing for affection is expressed uh, numerous times in this way in the naming of her sons. Now we go on. Verse 33, she conceived again, bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son too. Or also, he's added to me another son. And the word Simeon, or Shimeon in Hebrew, is a play on the word heard. So now she has 
realize that God has seen her condition and done something, if God's heard her, that implies that she's been praying. She's been calling out to God in her misery, in her affliction, and, and, uh, cause, and asking God perhaps for another child or to fix the situation, to correct uh, Jacob's attitude toward her. And so now the Lord has heard her. Simeon means heard or sounds like the word to hear. And again, she's recognizing that God has seen and heard her situation and acted on her behalf. She says, also, he's given me this son, which indicates her hope that his birth, again, will change Jacob's attitude toward her. Then we come to the third son, verse 34. She she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now, Levi is uh, connected to the verb attached or to be joined to. Leah has no sense that Jacob has any attachment to her at all other than bearing her son, uh, him sons. So uh, uh, she is uh, wanting to be attached to her husband in an emotional way as well as a physical way. And she says, now this time, now at last, having born three sons, he's got to change his mind. He's got to become attached to me. Now, through the passage, we're going to find that she calls Jacob my husband five times. So this is getting across the idea to us. Uh, of the rivalry of who is going to be the primary wife of Jacob. She's the older sister. She's the one who was married to him first. Therefore, she would be thinking she should have the predominant place in the home, including her husband's affection. But that's not the case, and she longs for a reversal. And again, we understand as time goes forward that from this child, Levi, will come the priestly tribe that God will appoint as leader and worship and service. But this son is coming from not Rachel, but from Leah. The last of the four sons, the first four sons, is Judah. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Now how is that significant? Well, Judah or Jehuda means praise or he will be praised, of course meaning the Lord. But finally upon this fourth son being born, there is no connection to her sentiment toward her husband Jacob. She's simply praising the Lord for blessing her with another son. She's not connected now with winning her husband's affection. So perhaps in these uh, nearly four years, she's learning to trust the Lord for her emotional needs and fulfillment in life. And you know and I know that it's through this son Judah that the chosen seed will come, 
that the kings of Israel will come and that Jesus the Messiah, who will bless all nations, will come from Judah. So in my thinking, it seems that Leah was the wife that God chose because of the events that come down the road. Now, as we think about what Leah has said in response to having these sons, it appears that she's a woman of faith who learns to rely upon the Lord in her distress. Now, that's going to be a little shaky as the story goes on. But three of these four times, as their sons are named, uh, it's associated with the Lord's providence, with him recognizing uh, uh, her condition, seeing and hearing uh, her prayers. So her faith then reaches the highest point when she has Judah, and she can simply praise God for his blessing, for his good gift to her. And we too need to learn to rely on the Lord when we face the distresses of life. Circumstances at times can make us feel miserable, rejected, or oppressed in some way. But the Lord knows all about what we go through in life, and he can even use those experiences to fulfill his purposes as he does here. So we need to call upon the Lord in our times of need as Leah did. Now, we move on to chapter 30. And here we have the conflict coming out clearly. But we see the Lord blesses his people in spite of our human efforts to obtain that blessing or to obtain the longings of our life. It was not wrong for Leah to desire her husband's affection. It was not wrong for Rachel to desire children. But these desires for good things motivated wrong actions and attitudes between the two sisters. And each is vying for supremacy over the other. Thus, they really kind of parallel Jacob's uh, struggle with his brother Esau and wanting to have the preeminence and trying to obtain that in his own way, and Laban's desire to have authority over Jacob. So we have all this kind of strife going on. Now, in verses 1 through 8, we see that through jealousy, Rachel seeks to prevail over Leah. Now, in verse 31, we see that the Lord saw Leah, looked upon her with compassion, and gave her a son. In chapter 30, verse 1, then Rachel saw Leah, that she bore, uh, saw Leah bearing children, but she is not bearing children, and she responds with envy or jealousy. So that contrasts with the way uh, God looks at Leah. Now, uh, Rachel receives Jacob's love and affection, but she wants to be blessed the way that Leah has been blessed. She wants children. And she's envious of that, which she does not have, instead of being thankful for what she does have. So she turns her angst now against her husband Jacob and says to him, give me children or else I die. Now that's a bit melodramatic, but it does express the strong feelings that Rachel had to have a child 
And it also would have included the shame of that culture and not being able to have a child. And she uses hyperbole to show that life without children is just not bearable. I'd rather be dead. Of course, that's really not a great attitude to have for someone who's supposed to be trusting in the Lord. But it also might indicate something else here. It might indicate that she would like her husband to do something about this, not necessarily physically, uh, uh, totally physically, but spiritually. Because in their history, as the stories of their fathers and grandfathers were carried down, Abimelech, uh, uh, Abraham prayed for Abimelech, and God opened the wombs of uh, his harem. And then later, when Rebekah was not able to bear a child, her husband Isaac prayed, and God gave her a child. So maybe she wants uh, Jacob to do the same thing. Why don't you intervene on our behalf and ask God to give us a child? But what does Jacob do? Jacob responds uh, in a very insensitive way. He just burns with anger. That's what the, the word means there. And it's not his fault that she doesn't have children. It's God's fault. He's the one who's in control of these things. But why just leave it at that? If God is in charge, if God is in control, if God can open someone's womb, why doesn't he pray that God will do that? Jacob would have greatly comforted his wife and diffused future rivalry by beseeching the Lord uh, in this way but he doesn't do anything. He's very passive in this whole uh, passage before us. So what does Rachel do uh, in light of this? Well, she resorts to the ploy that Abraham and Sarah used when God didn't um, do things in the time frame that they thought he should do them. And Uh, Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to have a child in that way. Now, that might have been socially acceptable, might have been a custom of the day, but it certainly wasn't the will of God. And Rachel now uses that same custom to have a child that she will adopt and raise as her own. So in verse 3, she says, Here's my maid, Billa, go unto her, and she'll bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Does Jacob say no? No. Jacob goes ahead. Uh, And uh, maybe he thinks this is going to please his wife and get her off his back. But when this all happens, well, Bilhah conceives and she bears Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, She called his name Dan. Now, Dan means judge, and it's related to what Rachel says in response to hearing that Bilhah is going to have this child. And so this indicates again that Rachel does pray because she says God heard her. That suggests that she at least has been praying And it seems that she's laid her case out before the Lord as a judge. 
She's been treated unfairly because her sister's born all the children and she has none. So it seems more like a prayer of vindication over her circumstances than one of really truly praising the Lord. Well, it comes to pass that her maid has another child in verse 7. Uh, Rachel says, What great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which means, uh, alludes to my wrestling, my striving. So the sibling rivalry is coming out very strongly here. Rachel believes that having a second surrogate son causes her then to prevail over her sister, who may actually at this point in time um, uh, be, be pregnant with maybe Judah, because this is going on all at the same time. Uh, and the struggling, the wrestling, suggests vying again for preeminence. Will Leah be the chief wife because she bears more children? Or will Rachel be chief because she's the one who's actually loved, and now she's going to have a couple of children, even though they would be adoptive? And what's interesting here, as she mentions this struggling, this wrestling, that the name of God, Elohim, is, is in that phraseology. And it may be that it's put there, as it sometimes is, to stress the fierceness of the struggle. But it could also indicate Rachel's struggle has also been with God over the circumstances about her sister that she may be struggling with him in prayer or struggling with his actions and why doesn't he do something. So the birth of Naphtali may seem to her that she's finally won the struggle with both God and her sister, but her motives are still controlled by that jealousy and that envy. She should be uh, a woman of faith, but it seems like that's a little bit lacking in her life. Now, let's go on to see what Leah sees. We've seen God sees, Rachel sees. Now to verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. So now she's had four sons, and uh, somewhere in that period of time, in her jealousy, uh, Rachel's given her maid to her husband, and there's two sons there. Now, after Judah's born, there comes a time, for some reason, that Leah is unable to have more children. We don't know exactly why that is. But when she sees that she stopped bearing, and now she's seeing that her sister's catching up, it's four to two, uh, she takes her maid Zilpah and gives her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. We say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, that's the meaning of the name Gad, but the idea is here, good fortune. Um, uh, like when a troop comes to the rescue of, of an army, 
uh, from an enemy. It's good news. It's good fortune. So the idea here is she says, this is good fortune for me. Maybe fortunate for her, but not for her sister. And one wonders why now the rivalry has taken place in Leah uh, when she already has four sons of her own, and Rachel hasn't even had a child of her own. It's only through her handmaids. She then has another son whose name is Asher, and this is related to the word happy. So she's saying, Asher's made me happy. We're going to call his name Asher. And there's no mention of the Lord in the naming of these two sons. In one case, she's been made fortunate. In the other case, she feels happy. And she knows that the women of the land are going to bless her and look highly upon her and honor her because her husband doesn't. And that's going to make her feel good. So Leah, it seems, has fallen a little bit away from the, the initial faith we see in her to get into this rivalry and to, to feel good because uh, the Lord shown her favor, but, but he doesn't, she doesn't say anything about the Lord in either of these two names. And now uh, she's just wanting to, to feel good about the situation again. She's focusing on her own happiness, how she's going to be viewed by others and that's certainly not going to improve relationship between the two sisters. And she's caught up now in this struggle and this rivalry to be honored, to be preeminent. Now that brings us to a pretty ugly exchange between the sisters over some mandrakes. So let's take a look here because we see that Rachel and Leah trust more in human means to obtain blessing than they do in God's role in this whole situation. <clears throat> so we come over to verse chapter 14, or excuse me, verse 14. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now think about it, Reuben can't be much more than like five years old at this point in time. And he finds these plants out in the field. I kind of doubt he knows what they are. Maybe he does. But he brings them to his mother. And uh, Rachel finds out, verse 14, and says, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Okay, so I would like to take some into my home. Well, Leah's not very happy about that. Verse 15, she says, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? So there the inner feelings come out again, the sense of rivalry. You know, you stole my husband's affection. You know, you, you know, he's in your tent most of the time, that kind of thing. Would you take my son's mandrakes as well? So there's bitter feelings between these two women, and it's coming out now in this particular situation. Now we might be thinking, what's the big deal about mandrakes? Why is there this rivalry? Well, this plant, from what I've read, is in the potato-tomato family. I don't know what the relationship there is. But in the summertime, uh, its fruit 
was yellowish. It was about the size of a plum and it had a very strong, uh, pleasant odor. But in the ancient East, it was considered to be an aphrodisiac. So, um, apparently, these two women think that this plant will help them overcome the issue of their infertility, which is probably more superstition than anything. But it's a human means of, of uh, overcoming the situation. And at any rate, well, Rachel makes a deal with Leah. We got a lot of deals going on in these stories, don't we? She says in verse uh, 15, Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So it seems to me that Rachel's got some say in where Jacob is going to spend the night. And uh, if you give me the mandrakes, then I'll give you Jacob. That's the deal. So before Jacob even gets to the tent, Leah runs out to meet them and says, hey, hey, you got to come and stay with me tonight for, because of the, uh, the deal with the mandrakes. Do you get the, the, uh, the sense here, the idea that Jacob's not a whole lot more than a, a pawn? He's really not more than a stud at this point. He's totally um, uh, under the control of his wives and doing what they want him to do to build this family when he ought to be leading and you know praying and worshiping and seeking God's will, and yet he's going from this woman to this woman to this woman to this woman and doing whatever they say. So it's not looking really great for him in this whole situation. He's very passive. Now, what's the result of all this? Uh, uh, you know, dealing and, and, and wheeling and all the strife going on. Verse 17, well, God listened to Leah. So that implies what again? That she's praying. That's a good thing. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, when it says fifth son, it means from herself. She's got two adoptive sons, uh, so that would be six altogether, but the fifth one is one that she bears herself. And now she says, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Now, um, Issachar is related to the, the concept of wages or reward. And apparently, as Leah thinks about this bargain that went on for Jacob, um, she's thinking back to her previous giving of her maid to Jacob, because that comes in here. I have given my maid to my husband. So she's going back in time and thinking about this. She never mentioned anything about God in their names, but now she brings that into the equation. And she somehow views this as God rewarding her. So the one who did not get the mandrakes is the one who actually begins to bear again. So that's kind of ironic. And it also shows you that the Lord's in control of this, not uh, supposed mandrakes. All right, um, so uh, the idea here is that she gave up something 
and God's rewarding her for it. She gave up the mandrakes. She gave up uh, the maid to her husband, and now the Lord's rewarding her for what she's been willing to give up. This may be what's going through her mind. Then she also has another son, verse 19. And when that son's born, she says, God has endowed me with a good endowment, the idea of a dowry. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons, and she called his name Zebulun. Now Zebulun is a pun on the terms endowment and dwelling. So now she views God giving her six sons as a precious gift or an endowment. So again, she's back to being thankful for what God has done and giving her uh, so many sons. And as a result, she again entertains the hope that Jacob will give her the honor that should be due her as a wife. And there's the idea of the dwelling coming through here. And what this word means is to dwell in an exalted way with the emphasis on the honor of that, that exaltation. So if God has exalted Leah with six sons and then two adopted sons, then it seems that Jacob also should honor her. So again, she's going back to that longing that she has. And then it adds here that at a later date, um, Dinah comes along, who will come into play in chapter 34. So in the midst of all this contention, this strife, this rivalry, the Lord providentially blesses Jacob's home with many children. So in grace, the Lord does bless despite our foibles and our failures and our faithless actions. Uh, but it doesn't make us any happier when uh, he blesses us in that way. Well, we come to the last section here, and this is in verses 22 to 24. And here we see that the Lord blesses his people by remembering their needs. And we're told now that God remembered Rachel. So again, the idea that God doesn't forget about Rachel. God sees her as well. He knows what she's going through. And notice here that God listened to her. So that means that Rachel's praying again and perhaps praying in a better spirit than she has previously because God opened her womb. And this is what she's been just hoping for through all these seven years. Um, She's tried to remove her own reproach by having surrogate children, but God doesn't forget her. And sometime during the probably the last year of Jacob's service, God opens her womb and she bears a son. And it is apparent that she's been seeking God for this. Now, her first response is verse 23. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. That is what's been driving her this whole time. The reproach uh, socially, and sometimes people would mock you or think that you were uh, a bad person because you couldn't have a child. And the Lord now has removed that. And this is associated with a part of J J Joseph's name that's associated with taking something away. So the Lord has taken this away, and she names her son Joseph. 
but it also has a uh, a thought about adding something as well, taking away and adding. So she finally responds in verse 24, the Lord shall add to me another son. So this is conveying to us hope. God gave me this son and uh, I, I can now hope that he will give me another son. And that's also related to the sounding of Joseph's name. So we have Rachel's hope for another son in the future that the Lord will add to her. Now, before we get there, we already know who that son is. That son's going to be Benjamin, and he's going to be born on the way back to Canaan. So at the end of this section, what we're seeing here is the future hope that Jacob's going to get safely back to Canaan, and on the way, he's going to have this son. So this hints, again, at the fulfillment of God's words that he'll bring him safely back to his homeland. Well, let's think about some ways that we can apply this to our lives today. First of all, as God's children, we will experience affliction, and we will bear the reproach of Christ. But God works his will through those kind of things, And he builds his kingdom in spite of adverse circumstances. And his purpose is that that we will constantly seek his guidance and his help as we serve him, not try to do things our own way, uh, not be controlled by jealousy and envy and rivalry and things of that nature. And this is something that Jacob's family went through. They learned by experience We're going to see that they're going to grow, but right now that's not super apparent. We also uh, may seek good things, even God's blessing, but we may try to acquire them in the wrong ways, like these two women did. We've got to learn to allow God to work out his purpose according to his timing, his will, uh, uh, doing things his way and not try to force God into a box or to do what we want to do now instead of waiting for him to do what he wants to do, which may take a long time. We're also taught here that his servants really should not strive. One of the precepts in the New Testament is that there not be strife between God's people. Now we can understand the situation back in Jacob's day where you have two women uh, that are your wives, and eventually you got four that are wives of different levels. And that's just going to cause chaos. It always does when we come to these kind of stories in the Old Testament. Nowadays, we don't have to worry about that, but there can be contention between God's people. God doesn't want that. And so we have to, to, to seek ways of not striving with each other, of being united, of getting along with each other. And uh, we're never going to be happy by looking at what somebody else has and taking our eyes off of what we have. And that was part of the issue, part of the problem here between these women. Finally today, the Christian faith is one of great hope. At least this story ends in a good way. Both women uh, have children. 
Rachel gets her reproach taken away, and she has the hope that she'll have another son. God realizes that hope in the end. But as children of God, sons of his kingdom, we have the greatest future before us possible. One day God will usher us into his eternal kingdom. If he doesn't come first, we're still going to be ushered into that kingdom. And at that moment, all of our struggles will certainly have been worth it all. So let's learn these truths from the story of Jacob and his wives as God builds his family in spite of all the rivalry going on between them. Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word today. We're thankful again, Lord, for these Old Testament experiences, uh, for what they teach us. And we do pray, Lord, that your goodness and grace would be upon us. Help us, Lord, to seek you in our times of difficulty and struggle. Help us, Lord, to walk with you each day, uh, to take our needs before you and look to you to fill them. And Lord, also, we just pray you'd help us to um, have healthy families, to get along with each other, to talk things out, and also uh, to have unity in the church with a minimum amount of strife. Help us always to be looking forward to our hope in Christ's return and the coming of his kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.